take thou authority to preach the gospel. Indeed, I look upon all the world as my palace. Hello, and thank you for joining us for our latest episode of Field Preachers. I don't know about you, but my heart is heavy from the tens of thousands, over 90,000 lives lost since this pandemic began in the United States. And if you've been reading the news, something else that has made my heart extremely heavy is realizing in, in reports from NPR to the Washington Post to the local news that communities of color are being hit harder statistically than other communities of faith. And it reminds me of a very powerful and painful discussion I had back in February about the history of racism in the United Methodist Church. People in communities of color are suffering now, but they have been suffering for ages. What does that mean for us? How do we respond as a community of faith? I hope you learn as much as I did from our panel discussion today. What happened was back in February of this year, it feels like years ago, but just in February of 2020, I led a pilgrimage for 20 United Methodist Church planters in their first few years of planting a new faith community. And we followed a path from New York City ending in Baltimore, where we learned about the birth of Methodism along the Eastern Seaboard. And an important part of that story that we needed to tell happened during our day in Philadelphia. We got a tour of historic St. George's. St. George's was established in 1769. And just a few years later, um, the prominent African-American Methodist Episcopal preacher, Richard Allen, along with another Methodist preacher, Absalom Jones and Harry Hoosier, they all gathered to pray at the altar of St. George's one morning. And the white trustees of the church tried to pull them up from the altar and put them back in the balcony where they felt they belonged. And Richard Allen, in his autobiography in 1833, records the words of his friend Absalom Jones, who cried out, wait until prayer is over and I will get up and trouble you no more. At the end of that prayer, Richard Allen, Absalom Jones, and countless others got up, walked out of historic St. George's and down the street where Richard Allen founded Mother Bethel African Methodist Episcopal Church. Absalom Jones went to work at the Episcopal Church. Harry Hoosier decided to stay within the Methodist fold, but left historic St. George's in 1796 to found Mother Zor Methodist Church. Mother Zor went on to birth Tinley Temple, another prominent historic African Methodist Church, United Methodist Church. And so what we did is we had this day where leaders from all of these churches could sit and talk to our church planters about the history of their church, hundreds and hundreds of years old, the racism that they've faced, and what it means for their story and their ministry in the present. So listen in today as you hear from um, a number of panelists. We had Reverend Mark Salvacion, who's the pastor of St. George's. We had Reverend Shayla Johnson, who is the current pastor at Mother Zor. Reverend Robert Johnson, no relation to Shayla, who is the pastor at Tindley Temple. 
We had uh, Reverend Dr. Jackie King, who works with me, actually. She's a colleague of mine at Discipleship Ministries, but grew up at Mother Bethel AME Church that Richard Allen founded. And uh, we also had Deaconess Darlene de Dominic join us from Arch Street, which was founded in 1862 and was the church, uh, church home of Bishop Matthew Simpson, who was a friend and advisor to President Lincoln. So I want you to hear about the history of these churches and how these courageous and brave pastors are leading their faith communities right now. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Answer the following question. Um, Share about the history of your church and how that legacy lives on to this day. So we will see what they have to share. We'll begin here with you, uh, Reverend Johnson. Hey, everybody. How y'all doing? Good, good. Um, I'm the pastor of Telling Temple United Methodist Church, um, located in South Philadelphia. And our church is unique because, well, first let me ask you this. Does anybody know who Dr. Charles Albert Tenley is? Suppose I tell you by and by when the morning comes. Mm -hmm. Suppose I say leave it there. Suppose I say to you that every time you sing, we shall overcome, that you're singing a Tenley hymn that has been stolen and moved around for folks. If I were to tell you that Tenley Temple is the largest United Methodist physical plant in the Eastern Pennsylvania Conference, seating over 3,200 people. Suppose I tell you that Tenley Temple was at one time in Philadelphia, the (laughs) mega church, serving over over 10,000 people over three services. Suppose I tell you all of that and now tell you that Tenley Temple is just a mere shell of what it used to be in a gentrified area and moving forward. However, suppose I tell you that in the gentrified area and where we're moving to, we now have a new lease on life without compromising who we are historically and and physically. So so we are a, a transitioning congregation. Understanding that what we have is more than just a building in the middle of a block, but is a vital ministry that has to reinvent itself to cater to the people who are now in our neighborhood. Now, the great thing about being the pastor of Tenley Temple is that I grew up at Tenley Temple. I grew up there. I joined the church at the age of eight. And 40-something years later, I am back now as its pastor, which calls for us all unique challenges. But uh, but but it's a, it's a transitioning it's a transitioning church, um, and one that when we talk a little bit later, I will tell you exactly how we are developing a new lease on life, and doing things a little bit differently on in that in that section of the city, and that section of the city, uh, believe it or not, is though it is gentrified, though it is no longer predominantly African American. The same problems that we faced when it was predominantly African-American are the same problems we face now in a gentrified situation. Only the race of the people have changed. Okay? Hello, everyone. Um, I'm Reverend Shayla Johnson again, and I serve uh, Historical Mother African Zohar United Methodist Church, which is the first um, United Methodist Church of African-Americans. It is consists of the remnants of those that remained at St. George 
when Richard Allen and Absalom Jones um, and a few others left St. George and started Mother mm-hmm. Bethel and um, went to St. Thomas Episcopal, those that started Zor remained here. Um, and even though they remained here, they had meetings in, in different people's homes and things like that. And then they went and established the Zor Methodist Episcopal Church. Um, it was a group of 13 um, men and women all together and started off for, at 4th and Brown, um, which is near here, but so it started off at 4th and Brown. And then after about 90 something years, then they moved to where our current location is now at 12th and Mellon. Um, we've been in a church in ministry for 225 years and we are still ongoing in ministry. Um, as, as with all churches, there are those challenges. M- Mother Zora was also a hub church where the Delaware Conference used to um, meet at at that time for the central jurisdiction. And now it is um, many of the members that are there. They've been there all of their lives. Our oldest member is 103 years old. So she gives uh, great history and wisdom and information. Um, But right now the church is situated. um, It is the only thing that has remained in the area. Everything else around it has changed. We are in the middle of a housing complex. And right now um, the area is being gentrified like many other of our urban areas. Um, So there is that challenge of those in the community, those who are without the resources that they need, that need that help, who are low income, and then across the street or right next door are those who are more of a higher income in luxury condos. So it's trying to minister to both and um, groups of people, but also with the church itself, the average age of the members are uh, 88, (laughs) 88 years old. So it's very interesting trying to um, put forth and do ministry as it's relevant, as opposed to looking backwards all the time. So um, I guess a little later we could get into, I guess, some more of those um, challenges and where we go from there. Um, Mark Savacion, uh, I've been pastor here uh, since 2017. Um, I shared a lot with, with all of you upstairs uh, in the first session about uh, the history of this church and about uh, uh, what we focus on here, which is uh, the history of discrimination as an institution in the United Methodist Church and how it's very important for us uh, here at Historic St. George's as, um, as stewards of history uh, to be stewards not only of, of you know, the, the uh, uh, not, not only of the growth of the church, the founding of, of the American Methodist movement, uh, but also issues of discrimination that have uh, uh, persisted uh, from the very, very beginning, um, going all the way back to Richard Allen and Absalom Jones and, and Harry Hoosier. Um, some of the today challenges uh, of historic St. George's, and, and I believe we share this with many other churches, is infrastructure. Um, back in 1919, uh, when they were planning on building the Ben Franklin Bridge, um, the Bishop of Philadelphia, a fellow named uh, Benjamin Neely, uh, sued the city to have the, the Ben Franklin Bridge moved. Uh, the, the original plan for the Ben Franklin Bridge would have come straight through this fellowship hall, and this church and St. Augustine's Church across the street were both condemned at that time. Uh, but through the lawsuit brought by Bishop Neely, 
um, they decided to move the path of the Ben Franklin Bridge 21 feet to the south. And uh, that's been a blessing and a curse for us, um, being in proximity to the Ben Franklin Bridge now for 100 years and to the Patco train since 1956 have caused us uh, you know, uh, tremendous infrastructure problems for which we are trying to raise money all the time. Um, and uh, it's, it's somewhat of a challenge uh, to be managing the, the, the uh, physical plant of, of this church, which includes three buildings and, and two lots, um, at the same time as doing um, uh, outgrowth ministry, doing outreach, to communities that that we feel are vital to serve today, um, and in, in terms of of that challenge, um, it, it it the financial challenges of the infrastructure here um, have direct impacts on on the types and uh, uh, scope of ministry that we can do. Uh, we can't do everything. We focused on on doing ministry to the LGBTQ uh, plus community as well as to the immigration community. Um, many churches you'll find here in Philadelphia uh, are, are focused on gentrification, immigration, feeding ministries, um, and it's uh, a church of this size. Uh, it's often a challenge to do. Um, how, many would, how many of you um, uh, would venture a guess as to how many members that we have here at this church? Members or uh, uh, Both. 300 members. We have 67 members here. And on any given Sunday, we'll have uh, 25 in worship, which is not to say that this isn't a vital church. Uh, of those 67 members and 25 attendees, we have an extremely vital ministry here. It's just we have to know our boundaries. We have to know our limitations. Um, but at the same time, I, I, I think that um, th there's a spirit here in mission where um, you know, we, we are really trying to um, uh, do today mission uh, with a view towards uh, the lessons we can learn from the past. So thank you. I am Jackie King, and um, I serve as uh, the director for U.S. Connectional Relationships. So my parish is the global church. Um, as an extension minister, um, the needs of annual conferences, the needs of a variety of groups are where my listening heart is connected to. Um, but I sit today to invite you to think about persons that are in your community that you may have never met and you don't know their story. When I was 30, I moved from Pennsylvania. Philly is my home. And I moved to Houston, Texas to sell oil and gas as the first African-American woman to sell gas for this particular company. As my parents said, I was moving below the Mason-Dixon line and I was crossing the Mississippi. In terms of being geographically to Philadelphia, all my family was within driving distance. I was an AME, born and bred at that point, and I left Philadelphia with what would be said in the terms of an AME church. I had a letter of good standing. I had been baptized. I was AME. I was at Allen AME, which was the name of the founder's church. 
but my family came to Mother Bethel on special occasions. We knew the story of Richard Allen being snatched up from his knees in St. George's and the march from that location to Six and Lumbered and the beginning of understanding that the oldest parcel of land was dedicated and the freedmen's story. I knew all of that. That was part of my DNA. But I went to Texas and I had been working and I needed to know at 30, what was my spiritual need? Well, I had helped students because I was a mentor. So every place I went, I would say to them on a Sunday morning, wherever I'm traveling, I need to be at a church. So I get to church in Texas because a student said, we know you want a church on Sunday. So they took me to Windsor Village United Methodist Church. And it was the biggest thing I had experienced. It was the last Sunday in February, and I thought in my mind, this must be some really great black history program because the parking lot was full. I grew up in Philadelphia. The parking lots of churches are not full. I didn't understand that. That was not part of my relevant DNA. The preacher preached. It was an amazing, but he preached on a sermon of a scripture. I was living in Allentown, and the preacher was supposed to preach that Sunday in Allentown was supposed to preach the same thing. And the pastor said, somebody in here needs to hear from this scripture. First Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. Now that I'm no longer a child. He says, I don't know who you are. I don't need to know who you are, but you've changed my whole sermon. And he looked right at me. Well, I looked in house hunted. And then that next Sunday, I went back to that church. And I joined. Well, why do I tell you this story? Because contextually, you may say, well, I don't know what I need spiritually. But I knew if I moved away from everything that had grounded me, I needed to have a church home. I didn't have a house. I had a temporary house, but I had a church home. My mother was completely upset because it was what? A United Methodist Church. And I was a, had a letter of good standing. So why tell you this? Because 30 years later, I am a United Methodist pastor. My mother is sick. And it was, has taken me 30 years to preach at a United Methodist Church in Philadelphia because every time I came home, my mother would make an appointment for me to preach at an AME church. <laughs> so technically in Philly, I have been AME. Even though I've joined another church, my needs are being met, spiritually growing, all those things. But you have to take into account that sometimes the people you are seeking to connect with they have another faith story before they meet you. It informs their spiritual well-being, how they think, how they breathe, how they process God in their life. And so for me, I preached in the pulpit of Mother Bethel, where in our life, we understand it to be foundational. We're standing on the shoulders, the historical piece, all those things. But in the same sense, they fight for justice. They're the people who fought yellow fever. When Anglo people were dying, the people at Mother Bethel, their DNA, something went on that they could fight yellow fever. So historically, how relevant is your life and what does it connect to? So I sit here today as a connector and a conscious thinker to say, what is God pressing in your heart as a passion? And how will you live into that? 
So I'm Darlene. I am a deaconess. How many of you know what a deaconess is? What's a deaconess? A United Methodist deaconess. Yeah. Well, I know it through the United Methodist women. Right. We're related to the, through, to the general church through the United Methodist women. Anyone else? And not if you're related. It is the only order of laity in the denomination. So there's three orders of ministry, elder, deacon, and deaconess home missioner. There are men or folks who identify as men in our community. Um, and we use the word home missioner for those folks because, of course, this denomination has problems with gender identity. Um, right? True story. Um, and I serve in a co-leadership uh, uh, role at Art Street United Methodist, um, which sits in the shadow of City Hall, sometimes literally, depending on where the sun is at the time of the day, we sit in the shadow of City Hall, but predate City Hall by about three decades. So we were the only building um, in that section of the city at the time in which it was built. We were built um, predominantly on the request of bishops, Matthew Simpson, really, Bishop Matthew Simpson, as um, the place in which the Philadelphia Conference would have its annual meeting or its annual conference. So the building itself is um, built in such a way to have everyone sitting in one space at the same time <laughs> and um, having a meeting. So we have very few smaller spaces for meetings or um, additional space there. Uh, you'll probably drive by it, I would think. You're driving by it after Tinley Temple maybe? Um, up Broad Street. So we're about half a block north of City Hall. Um, so not a dissimilar uh, reality, a local reality as Tinley Temple, just on the other side of City Hall. We serve um, a predominantly housing and secure congregation. So we have three worship services on a Sunday morning. Uh, or on a Sunday, two in the morning and one in the evening in our largest community um, are folks who are currently unhoused. Um, so I serve in a co-leadership role with an elder. So my colleagues over here are elders um, or provisional elders or about to be full elders. <laughs> um, so my colleague, the lead pastor of the congregation is an elder and I am a deaconess and I serve as the executive director of our nonprofit. Um, so in the early part of um, the life of the congregation, we served a radically changing um, urban or what was emerging to be urban at that time uh, environment. And we do the same now. Um, we, sir, we worship on a Sunday morning, about 100 folks, um, but we worship total on a Sunday about 300 folks. Um, and about 150 of those folks are currently um, uh, unhoused or housing insecure. So our, our third worship service is actually um, uh, created and led for the most part by a uh, almost like a pop-up basketball style worship team and chorus of our community that shows up and creates worship together and leads it. Um, some of the blessings and challenges, like my colleagues have mentioned, uh, of serving a historic church, just like um, Pastor Mark mentioned, we are constantly raising funding to keep a building like that afloat. So that's a major challenge. We're um, embarking on what will be probably close to $5 million of required 
um, restoration to the building um, in the next couple of years. Um, and when you drive by the church, you'll see sidewalk protection because our spire has a little bit of a unsafe condition with the masonry um, on the spire um, at the moment. But, um, you know, there's also blessings in that. We are literally in the corner of Broad and Arch at the heart of the city. And um, we're accessible by all major forms of public transportation. So it's easy to find the congregation. It's easy to get to the congregation. And that gives us a lot of opportunity to engage um, our neighbors, just like we did in the 1860s, 1870s when we were building um, serving our community right there on the block, um, doing that now as well because of that really wonderful location. The blessing also of that is we're in a historic district, just like this is. And so sometimes the city and the state want to invest in us. Um, and so we're in the process of doing that right now. What gets me up in the morning is the story of a trans woman of color named London who was murdered by her abuser in um, a home uh, that she and a couple friends were um, were living in, didn't own, didn't have the rights to. Some folks call that squatting. I don't usually use that language. Um, and you know what? She was stabbed to death by her abuser. And other trans women of color on the third floor of that house ran screaming down the stairs to find the police who laughed at them because they didn't want to interact. Philadelphia Police Department police officers. And it wasn't until they dragged London's body um, down the stairs on a blanket and out into the street that the police responded. And there is no way for me to separate the fact that London um, was a survivor and a victim of abuse, was a trans uh, woman identified person of color. All of those things intersected. And if we're gonna be real followers of the way, these Jesus followers, that's where we're called to be at those intersections, being a voice to dismantle that oppression and being a voice of hope and of love. Um, our, our call is to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Like we, we can't forget the last half of that section, right? Mm -hmm. to, be to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of this world world. And the transformation of this world includes the transformation of our own systems of oppression that we create for ourselves inside the institution of the church, creating barriers that keep people in and out, but also uh, the systems of oppression that are across the street in the rotunda of that city hall um, and Capitol Hill and in our state houses. Because they're they're the same systems. We just use nice churchy language about it, right? When we look at the history of Richard Allen and Harry Hoosier, and Richard Allen who decided to walk out of St. George's and go and start Mother Bethel, and Harry Hoosier who stayed in the United Methodist Church, I mean, at Mother's Or, but, but stayed in that denomination that was discriminating against him. When we look at especially now with general conference coming with folks feel like discrimination at another level exists. How do you decide when to stay and when to go? Ultimately it's, it's not, and maybe, I don't know, I might be the wrong person to answer this because right now everything that's going on, I just think is ridiculous. I think it's crazy. I think it's a waste of time. 
um, in terms of arguing or, or waste of money, rather, in terms of going back and forth, back and forth, and then throwing the discipline and throwing the Bible, throwing the discipline, throwing the Bible. At the end of the day, my thought is, where is God in all of this? How do you decide when to stay? How do you decide when to go? For a congregation that's been in ministry for 225 years, we've been there since the beginning. Since the beginning, we were there. We we while we're 225 years old as a ministry, they were there also many years before that at St. George. So it's like for for people, as long as God is in the forefront and God is the focus and God's ministry and kingdom building work is what's important. That is what keeps people and why people decided to stay. Um, it, it had nothing to do about everything else going on around us. How do you stay? How, how do you decide? You decide with your heart and your conscience. Is God making this decision? Are you making this decision with God? Or are you doing it on your own? Because when we all go off and we do stuff on our own, we all know what happens. We fall flat on our faces. And then we go looking for help and we're crying and, and, and like, oh, what do we do? Lord, help me. Lord, help me. And God is like, you should have just listened to me. You should have came to me first to begin with. As the, as the daughter of the mother, Tenley Temple came out of Zor. We have already made the decision that if this is a bad marriage and we have not been treated right for the 190 years we have been, or 90 whatever years we've been on that corner, sometimes it takes a schism. And let me be honest with you. It's not what it is for, the, for most African-American churches. It's not the LGBTQ+. It's racial justice. Let me be clear. Sometimes you let them fight and then you go out the back door because you haven't been treated right. How can you solve the LGBTQ plus when you haven't solved the racial problem that has been plaguing our church since Richard Allen left? But you don't want to reconcile with us. How is it? No, no offense. No offense. You can have a great relationship with, 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 with Mother Bethel and they love Mother Bethel, but you don't recognize the churches that stayed who still weren't allowed to come downstairs and, and pray. Y'all get me? And so how do you, how do you stay in a place? How do you praise in a painful place? That I preached that last Sunday, by the way. <laughs> How when you hang up your harps because you can't sing the Lord's song in a strange land. Yeah, now you, you can give me a tie for that, okay? <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? So do you stay or do you go? Now listen, the question was asked, you don't have to stay United Methodist. There's other, listen, I said denominate, listen. Our folk leave our churches and they don't go back to United Methodist churches. They go to Baptist churches, non-denoms, UCCs, wherever they go. But the problem is, for me, in the midst of all of this, don't do LGBTQ plus and still ignore me by the wayside. That's, that's, that's the thing. How do you stay when folk look past you and not to you? 
I think it's a complicated question. A complicated question we're all asking, right? Uh, when's it okay to stay and when's it okay to go? Or um, I think the problem for me is there are no individual decisions. This is the connectional church. I mean, and I think that's an important conversation for our church planners, right? You're usually planting something place-based um, and having conversations individually with community members, but you're not having individual conversations or bringing folks into an individual congregation. We're a connectional church, right? And so when a church chooses to leave, they make an individual decision that has collective impact on the greater. Um, and that is a complicated, that's complicated. And it can't just be rooted in, um, it, in, a, in a single siloed um, issue. It, is, it has to be um, a conversation about intersectional liberation. Um, I guess the place where I ask that question from is, is I feel or at least sense, and I could be wrong, that, um, that there may be um, some extinguishing that has taken place in our denomination, um, whereas the flame was probably lit at one point and it now is not lit, but it's extinguished somehow, um, that maybe has lost its fire or its, its passion or zeal for ministry in, in some sort. And, other people in other denominations or in circles and communities have felt that way also. So I know that's a lot, but those are just kind of some premature thoughts. <laughs> um, yeah. Tell me your name again. Donovan, when I went to the board of ordained ministry and you're asked the question about your spiritual identity, you can write it, you can live it, you can speak it, but to be true to yourself, it's always critical to know your story. My godmother was Pentecostal. My next door neighbors were Church of God in Christ. My grandmother was Catholic. We were AMEs. And I was now in a United Methodist Church. And my best friend growing up was Jewish. I was ecumenical before I understood being ecumenical. But I knew what it was like to be at Point Breeze Avenue. And the woman would fall on her face and praise God. But when I came before the Board of Ordained Ministry, I made a conscious decision that I serve a triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I don't have permission from the God that wakes me up in the morning to ever lose my zeal. I can be angry. I can be anguished, I can be disappointed, I can be challenged, I can be unsituated. But I don't give this world, this denomination, anybody. I didn't got loud. <laughs> to steal my joy. And as a church planter, who planted a church online when we did not even have all of these call plans. You have to understand my historical base. My design team could not meet until 845 because that's when everybody got free service. I'm, I'm taking you back old school. I'm taking you back when there was only a few digits you could dial. That's right. Amen. 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 That's right. And I was designing with a young team that did not know Jesus, and we did meet us at curbside in the street. We had hot dog socials in the park. Mm -hmm. 
And so when we launched online, the slogan was meet God anytime, anywhere, anyhow. But when the conference said, we don't have that magical number. The Holy Spirit said, we also don't have a plan that says when your church does not become charter, what happens to the people who came to know Jesus through your expression of faith? If you don't fight for your people, they will be dismissed. But when you learn to fight for your people, you fight for the Jesus that's in you. So, you know, the movie Dirty Dancing, they say you can't put baby in the corner. You can't put Jackie in the corner. You can't put the Holy Spirit in the corner. That's not an option in my life. So as a person who is planting, you have to expect to get weary. But do you need your scripture? Galatians 6, 9. I will not get weary of doing good because in due season, you got to have your own foundational spot. You got to be able to lay down, prostrate, talk to God and say, God, I'm not getting up from this ground till you talk to me. Because of what you put in me, some people don't understand. And then once you make up your mind, You need to recognize Romans. Romans 9 talks about the zeal, the hospitality. They don't ever have to like me, but the scripture says we will love one another. I don't give people the option. Well, I didn't like what she was saying. We still need to love Christ. And if your passion is quenched, You have to go to the one who has the fire and say, Lord, reignite it in my heart right now because I can't breathe without you, God. So you don't give people that power. I don't care if it's the board of ordained ministry. I don't care if it's the district superintendent. I don't care if it's the one. Sometimes they say to me, well, and then I go to praying. And the whole sister told me a long time ago, pray without ceasing. And you know what I told that senior adult at that time? Mama, and it wasn't my mama, it was the church mama. I told her, I said, I got a job. I can't be praying all the time, walking around, just chanting. She just laughed. She <laughs> patted her foot and she said, live long enough. When you done been called a few things. When some doors have been broken down that you got in and nobody else got in, you'll learn to put a prop in the door. Because there'll be another black woman behind me. There'll be another child of God behind me. There'll be another people of God. There'll be some white folks that say, I can't deal with this or that. There'll be some people that will come behind me that will declare their identity in Christ Jesus. Because that's who I am as a church planter. He had me plant a seed. But he said, you'll live it all your life. So once you've been in a planting space, you will plant forever. Get your seeds out. Get your can out. Keep watering. Don't let the location stop you. You are a planter forever. So often church planters go out into community and they learn the story of that community. And then they're able to share that with others who may have forgotten what that neighborhood stands for, what it means to be beloved community in that space. How have you, do you feel like those living right around City Hall or wherever your context is, do the people living in your community know the story of Tindley or of Mother's Or? And 
it, do you have to retell that to them or do you let that go? What? <laughs> they don't care about our history. They don't care about the hymns. They care how can I connect to Jesus in a real way right now. They don't care about 1857, 1975. I'm hungry, how you gonna feed me? I'm naked, how you gonna clothe me? They don't care, you know, Bernie Sanders was at the church. They don't care. Barack Obama came. They don't care. Louis Farrakhan came through. They don't care that Joe Biden's coming in March. Wink, wink, you know. (laughs) How do I get over? Help me, church. They don't even know the name of your church. They just know that you got a cross on the side, and that's where Jesus lives. And the people inside the church don't want the people outside the church because if they ever come in the church, then the church ain't going to smell like church. It ain't going to look like church. It's not going to be church. Church can only be what we call it to be. And Jesus, and listen, if Jesus will look like some of the people that we don't want in, heck, some of us won't even let Jesus in church. Everybody is welcome in the house of God. But let me tell you this. When I got to all of my churches, the district superintendent told me more about the people in the church than he did about the people in the community. And do you know why that is? Because the district superintendent didn't talk to the people in the church about the people in the community. And can I be honest? Most of our church people don't even live in the community in which we serve. And let me be honest with you with that. Now, guess who's the person that's responsible for getting to know the community? It's us. And then when we tell the people what's in the community and what the community needs, then they'll make an excuse not to allow the people in the church from the community. And the church said, said everything I was going to say. I'm sorry, sir. It's all right. But but no, just on a a note, an extension to that, um, knowing the history, no, the community don't know. And the community, like you said, half of them don't care because they just want to know, how can you help me? How can you be a resource to me? Where can, can you help me with? Can I, where can I find this? Can I find this at your church, at your church? Can you help me with that? Um, the other, the other thing is, is that sadly the people in the church don't even know the history of the church. So here I am, I'm at Zor, right? I'm young buck, new to the scene, right? I've only been in church five years. And in, in my first two years, I've got, I had to go to all these different trainings and workshops and all this stuff in the conference and everything. And I go and I sit around the table with people and they go, oh, where are you? And I say, mother African Zor. And they say, oh, well, where's that? What's, what's that? Why don't you know? It's a part of the history. So if the people in the in the denomination don't even know their history, why do we expect or think that the people in the community would know and care if we don't? And then we wonder, how come our churches aren't um, able to service the people in the community? It's like, well, if you don't know your history and you don't know what you did in order to know what you can grow and actually potentially do, then 
how can you get anywhere? You know, and then sadly, instead of knowing about the history, all we know is this is what we used to do. This is how we've always done it. And then my question is, why? Who is it serving? You know, and, and the people in the community want to know that as well. Oh, you have this. Um, what, well, what is it for? Is, it, is that for me? Am I am I welcome? Is it for me? You know, one one Sunday we had um, we had a concert and we were outside after after the service. I told him I was like, just take the water, ice and pretzels outside outside. Why? Why can't they just everybody could just come in the fellowship hall? No, because ain't nobody coming in the doors of the church. And to be honest, if I wasn't the pastor, I wouldn't come in either. So take it outside, put it in the parking lot. Oh, if the water ice going to get on the sidewalk, who cares? That's what nature's for. Just throw some hot water on it while it wash off. But when the people in the community see that you're out here and you're, it's there for them, and you're like, hey, how you doing? You want a water ice? Here you go. No charge, no nothing. Just here you go. But sadly, our churches, our members are looking for people to come and be members, to come and pay tithes. And then the first thing that come out of their mouth when people walk up from the community, come up, they go, oh, well, do you have a church? You should come here on Sunday. No. Because now they're automatically turned off because you didn't ask them their name. You didn't even ask them, do they live in the neighborhood? You didn't even ask them, how are you? So and, and that's and that's an issue. So do the people in the community know? No. Do the people in the church know? No. Do anybody care? Sadly, no. <laughs> so where do we go from here? Where do we go? But again, it, it's all about planting that seed and continuing to invest in it. You know, Paul tells us over and over again that we are to be like Christ and Christ suffered and Christ sacrificed. So if you claim that you are like Christ and you're striving to be like Christ and a Christian after God's own heart, that means you're going to sacrifice and that means that you're going to suffer as a Christian, as the church. Field Preachers Podcast has been a production of Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church. Visit all our podcasts at podcasts.umcdiscipleship.org.